Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. On today's episode of Back from the Borderline, you'll hear my interview with my dear friend Kim. We connected originally through YouTube. She left a comment on one of my videos, which led me to clicking into her account. Kim is on YouTube as Kim Poster. I'll include her Instagram and YouTube handles in the show notes so that you can connect with her. But as soon as I started watching Kim's content, I was hooked. Kim live streams herself playing The Sims as she talks about her mental health, primarily her struggles with BPD. There's something extremely calming about watching Kim's Sim avatar go through the motions as she shares bravely and vulnerably about her life. Kim's level of introspection and accountability is something that I know will inspire everyone in the Back from the Borderline community, so I invited her to be a guest on the podcast. What you'll hear now is our conversation. Please know that we discuss some seriously triggering topics like childhood sexual abuse and rape in our conversation. If you aren't in a safe space, you may want to skip this episode. I absolutely loved my time with Kim, and I just know you will too. So let's jump in. You have entered back from the borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. All right, so we can kick things off, and I have Kim with us here on Back from the Borderline. So Kim, do you want to tell us a little bit about you? I know that's a broad question, but... (laughs) I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm 33, and I'm a Filipino-American. I'm a writer, 
And I just got promoted at my job. So now I'm a manager and I'm somehow doing that despite having BPD. Um, And I'm a mental health advocate. I can relate so much to celebrating promotions at your job, especially if you're in some type of corporate environment. Can I ask what you do for a living? Yes, I am a manager of researchers. I'm a people manager and all of my days are just full of interactions, which is so fucking insane to me because my social anxiety is crazy. You work remotely? Yes. Thank God. I can't tell you how much I've found that I've excelled in my corporate career since the pandemic has forced us to work completely remotely. I find that I am just like in my element. When I'm done with Zoom, I can be done with human beings and like recharge my introvert batteries. And it's just Mm -hmm. so nice. Has being remote been better for your mental health? Oh my God, so much better. So I started out in the office and Every time I went there, I had to take so many bathroom breaks just to be away from people and like protect my energy. And now that I'm working from home, I just like recharge in my bed for like 10 minutes and then I'm like ready, good to go back to the next meeting. I worked um, at Louis Vuitton when I like first came out of university and it was my brief stint in the fashion world. As an intern, we had a bathroom that we called the crying bathroom because we (laughs) would just go and have like little sob fests in there. But I feel like every place that I've worked since then, I've still had my own version of the crying bathroom. My next question for you. So the reason why you're on the podcast is because you commented on one of my podcast episodes and I clicked over to your profile and I binged every video that you had done. So for the audience, I'll have already done an intro on Kim. And so you'll already have heard about her. She speaks about her mental health while she's live streaming, playing the Sims. And as someone who I grew up playing the Sims. And so hearing you talk about PPD while you're playing the Sims, I found it to be the most relaxing, peaceful experience. So I binged all of your stuff. The Sim that you're playing typically looks like you. And it's just such a dope, like meta, clever thing for a person who's an introvert to do. How did you come up with that idea? And what made you start talking about mental health while you were playing The Sims? It's actually because I have body dysmorphia. And I tried to record myself talking a couple of times, but then I'd get caught up in like, if I looked ugly, or if I turned my head, if I had an ugly angle or something. But I just found that if I could play The Sims, um, it's just more creative. Like you can make your Sims do all these crazy things. You can make them cry and act out the things I'm talking about. So it just became a lot funner for me to play video games while talking about my mental health. I also struggle a lot with body dysmorphia myself. And I can relate because I did my first YouTube video. I tried doing a YouTube video first before the podcast and it was Mm -hmm. just me talking straight to camera. And I felt exactly the same way. I found myself nitpicking like the tiniest asymmetry in like one of my nostrils. Right. And I'm literally (laughs) convincing myself that I'm a hideous person. What has your experience with body dysmorphia been like through like the BPD lens? Whenever I feel depressed and I'm kind of splitting on myself, I tend to automatically think that I look like shit. So if I'm like passing by a mirror, I'll like hide from it because I feel so down that day. It's like I just know to instinctively hide from the mirrors whenever I'm going through, like whenever I'm spiraling. 
I used to struggle a lot with uh, like compulsive skin picking and I had acne pretty bad. Um, it that flared up literally when I was like 29 out of nowhere. And so I found myself just like my body, my body dysmorphia gave rise to some serious, like looking really closely at my face in the mirror. Right. And just starting to pick apart every pore. And then when you stand back, I don't know if you've experienced something like that where you're like, what have I done? And being so hyper aware of the nuances of your appearance. When in reality, we know that people see us just like from a distance, right? No one's ever actually looking at us close up. But the pain that comes along with not being able to like really embody that fact is is so striking. And I had the same skin picking thing too. Mm. It's so relieving to hear that you went, not that I want you to. No. That, but like <laughs> I feel comforted that someone else has dealt with it. No, it's not just you. Like if we see something like a pimple, society conditions, conditions us to believe that acne is pretty dirty and gross. And so I feel like if we have some type of imperfection on us. It's just further confirmation of that core belief. You know what I mean? And it's just, and I can see flaws in myself so much more than I can see them in others. Like for example, if my boyfriend has a zit and I see him going like, Oh God, all you can see is my zit. And I'm like, I don't even notice your zit. I just see you, you know, like you see their beautiful eyelashes or you see, you know, like your eye doesn't go just to the zit, but when it's on your own face, it's like, that is literally all I can see. And I'm convinced that that is all anyone sees of me. Oh my God. Just the way they worded (laughs) that, I was like, I never thought of it that way, but that is true. When I see other people's skin, I'm not focused on their imperfections, but with mine, it's so magnified. I feel like I'm talking to myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I, I know. And same, because that's how I felt when I was watching all of your YouTube videos. We articulate our experience also in a very similar way, What have you learned about yourself from playing Sims? One, I have the element of control when I'm playing. It's an element that I wish I had in my life. And but I did learn eventually that I do have a sense of control, especially in how I react to things. Because as you know, people with BPD, they tend to, when they are triggered, they tend to just say things or do things. And for me, like imagining myself as a sim, I can be like, wait, hold on. What do I actually want to do here? And then I can like picture myself clicking on the right reaction, I guess. I love that. Life happens so fast. And I think a lot of us with BPD spend so much of our time saying, why did I do that? In sim land, you have the time to like think about what 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 will happen or and if it does i can kind of rewind and i can fix it but i'm constantly going in those circles still where like i have these silly impulsive urges to say something to get like validation from my person do you ever struggle with stuff like that still yes um <laughs> although i i feel like the way you're talking about your relationship with your boyfriend me with my husband um I think I'm a little bit more lashing out. Like I'm prone to lash out, I guess, to Mm. my husband. So if I were to see him look at me that way, I'd be like, you don't love me. (laughs) I would just declare it. And that's obviously not good. It's interesting because I find it takes a lot to get me to lash out. But when I do, oh, I do. It's almost like we're achieving the same thing, but we're just having a difference in our delivery because it's like – we we feel the impulse to say that it has to do with something about us. The very fact that we see someone's microfacial expression and think automatically someone doesn't love us. 
Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. And you have to it laugh is. at it. <laughs> you do. That's the thing. I literally laugh. This is the first relationship I've had where I've been very open about my mental health struggles. And then I've finally found that that BPD was kind of the frameworks I've been operating on. So we can laugh at it together now. Before I was so hyper-reactive to any perceived criticism. I have experienced my parents after me having like an episode of them having conversations where I kind of thought of like, what are we going to do with this crazy child? Mm. Did you experience any things like that growing up? Yes. Um, so, well, my parents were are, are Filipino and they spoke their language. So I kind of learned to listen to that, their language um, as like them talking shit about me because I could tell from their tone that they were talking about me. I just felt like every time I showed emotion, it was too much for them and it just ruined their day. And one time my dad would even like look at me and be like, you make my life miserable. I was just like, how do you say that to a kid? You know? But there was a time when my dad said to me, I think when I was 15, something along the lines of this family existence would be so much more calm without you here. Right. Like that type of thing. It sounds like we got very similar messages growing up. I was always too, too loud too I said too much. I'd say the wrong thing. I was too emotional. I was too dramatic. And I responded to that by kind of being like, I'll fucking show you dramatic and loud. Mm It really sucks because that was to my detriment. Only now as I've been, like gotten further into my recovery, I'm realizing like there was such an inner strength to that little girl. Like she was unapologetic, she was brave, but because people tried to smash that down in me, I I I pushed it to the limit. And mm-hmm. anything in excess is really damaging. Oh my god. I I've, I've done the same thing mm. and I just remember my grandma was the only one who tried to discipline me and she would be like, when you get older, you will know. And she said it like really ominously, like you will know why you're like this. I don't know. I think she's right though, because I did realize why I was like that. I have BPD. On your YouTube video, you said that you were diagnosed in 2009. Can you talk a little bit about what life was like before you were diagnosed? Like what precipitated your diagnosis? I would say it started to show when I started dating and I had very, very bad attachment issues to people. And I remember when one of my boyfriends had a second job and I freaked out on him and I took it to mean that he didn't love me as much because he was so busy. And it was such an inappropriate reaction that I like cheated on him without even thinking about it. And, um, I just became addicted to doing that whenever I felt abandoned because the abandonment was so extreme. Um, And then I reflected on it a little bit and I realized that when I was a kid, that same abandonment is what I felt for my mom when she would go to work. Mm. And I felt like a child, like my inner child was wounded with this person. And there's a lot of shame in that because I don't want to be a cheater. I don't want to be someone that like, is emotionally abusive in a relationship, but I knew that something was wrong. And that's why I went to my psychiatrist. How old were you at that time again? Um, 21. Okay. I can relate to how you describe the infidelity piece. I have been unfaithful in the past 
basically always feeling like you're preparing for this person to leave. So you needed to have almost like backups on deck. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed backups. So interesting the way you said that. And it's almost like treating them like objects a little bit. Like I almost treated my partners, even if I wasn't exclusively dating them, I would treat them like drug hits, I guess. I need a hit and then this person can't give it to me. So I'm going to go to someone else and I'm going to have them there just the, just in case, like you said. When I rewind to those days, if one of those guys that I was talking to at the time didn't text me back or didn't call me back, I would be so slighted by those perceived disses. But then at the same time, I'm treating these people like trash too. I really do believe in a lot of law of attraction principles. And however woo-woo people may think that to be, trash in, trash out. Good in, good out. You're going to get back what you put out into the world. But if we are constantly thinking these horrible thoughts that that these men that we're dating are trash and that they're going to abandon and cheat on us. And then that's exactly the type of world we're going to find ourselves living in. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh man, I'm getting flashbacks right now. <laughs> yeah. Like, And also with BPD, we don't want to sit there and think about that either because I'll tell you, when I start thinking about how I treated people before my recovery, it would really cause me to spiral and have an episode. And I don't want to feel those feelings. If you sit with those feelings just for a moment and like just really let them wash over you, you realize that they don't control you. It's actually really healthy and healing to say, you know what? Yes, I treated these people really poorly. But now I know better. My therapist always says that to me now because I'm always like, oh my God, I'm depressed. I'm I'm regressing. And she's like, you're never regressing because you're never going to go back to how you were yesterday. You're, you've like learned. That. Before I had such a lack of a moral compass in my life and it was for no through no fault of my own. I was unaware, right? I was just this wounded animal causing drama and chaos around myself. Mm-hmm. But now if I put like one toe out of moral line, I'm so hard on myself because I see that as like, oh my God, the the house is going to crumble now, right? I'm going to go back to my quote unquote old ways. And my therapist saying that to me really helped because she's like, look, you're human. Don't make the goal of your recovery to not be human because humans make mistakes. Humans fuck up. You're never going to go back to that unconscious version of yourself. That's so true. And powerful. Isn't it? Yeah. Ugh. It really changes the game. Do you remember the time when you had your epiphany, because someone who speaks about BPD like you has had the epiphany. And when I say the epiphany, it means there's one day where you kind of just wake up and you're like, oh, it's not the world. It's me. Like I need to fix this. <laughs> but And also that thought doesn't bring you shame too. That's the epiphany because before you'll think it's me and it's like, whoa, is me. And that's, that's mm-hmm. not the epiphany. The epiphany is like, oh my God, like it's me. It's just these patterns I've been repeating. And if I work on fixing these patterns my life will get better. Like, did you have that epiphany? Yes. And I distinctly remember it. It was, so I didn't want to go to DBT, but my husband gave me an ultimatum and I went and I remember before going to DBT, I thought that like, I was not as borderline as the people there, if that makes sense. I was like, I'm doing the work. I tried teaching DBT to myself. I don't need to be here. But one day I was like going a few weeks and I remember taking a shower and I was just like, it's not about who's better than everyone else. It's that we're all, we all have 
the symptoms and it's it's not about like comparing yourself with other people and just realizing that like I'm in that bucket I'm one of the people that needs to get better and recover and I think that's when my recovery began in one of your videos you said I don't have a lot of friends that know the real me and I think a lot of us can relate to that what is your experience with discovering your identity in that way been like Okay, that's a good question. Um, so I'm really passionate about like understanding myself and understanding why I'm triggered. And if I can't talk to somebody about the fact that I'm triggered or how deeply it triggers me, then that means I can't be as intimate with that person. And unfortunately, a lot of people in my life don't understand BPD. So that's why I say I feel like they don't know who I really am. They don't know who I am underneath the facade that I show them. Another question that I have, this new research that I just posted about yesterday on Instagram, and if you don't follow me on Instagram, it's at BPDT. This new research has come out and shown that up to 80% of people with BPD have experienced early childhood emotional neglect or sexual abuse, which is something that makes it more likely that we become victimized later in life. This is a really tough subject to talk about. And I was really moved by the fact that you opened up about your own sexual assault experience in your YouTube channel. Did you experience um, abuse in your early childhood of any kind? Yes, I did. It was a repressed memory and I was abused by two family members, but I didn't see it as abuse because it was normalized and I didn't have, you know, my parents weren't there. They were working too much and they didn't really pay attention to the signs. It didn't occur to me until I grew up and then I started remembering what happened. And then as an adult, I was sexually assaulted by an ex. It was so, uh, can I be graphic or? Oh yeah. I want to share unapologetically the truth because some people may be going through this same stuff and hearing about these things is how we call abuse what it is. Okay. Well, I knew that he was mad and I went to his house anyway. And he just like did this BDSM thing that we were, I did not consent to. And Mm. it was obviously rape. And I, in my mind, I guess to protect myself, I was telling myself that I didn't actually get raped. He was like forcefully beating me and mm-hmm. I, I told him to stop. And he, he like justified what he was doing because he was angry at me. But we had never had a discussion about like what I was okay with. Wow. I am so sorry you went through that. And for years, I was just like, well, I shouldn't have gone there. It was my fault for even thinking of seeing him. But I was in denial. Was there kind of a moment where all of that kind of bubbled up for you into one? Oh, yes. I actually got, I don't know if it's assaulted or I was violated during a hypnotherapy session. Mm. And the therapist kissed me and I was like, this feels familiar And then I started having dreams of like the molestation and then putting two and two together about my ex-boyfriend. So when those feelings came up for you, how were you feeling? Well, I should have gone to therapy, but um, instead I was just trying to open up to my friends and I even let myself cry in front of them and I never do that. Um, And then I told my parents about the molestation 
And because they're kind of closed off, I didn't get the response I wanted. Mm. And that, that wounded me a little bit. What was the response? They, my mom basically was like, oh, well, that happened to me when I was a girl and I got over it. And my dad was like, oh, why didn't you tell us? Like kind of like shaming me in a way or telling wow. me to get over it. And it's almost like in that moment, it's your parents like did not have the emotional tools in their toolbox to even be able to like, it's like system overload, like cannot compute. Like Yes, exactly. And I try to be empathetic about that because I know that they weren't raised with like a lot of emotional validation either, but I was hurt. With good reason. You have very good reason to be hurt because our parents are there to protect us. How did you reconcile those feelings of you knowing your your parents loved you in their own way, but with this anger of of their response to your assault? I'm just curious of how you tackle that now. Um, well, I was splitting on them for a while after that. And then after like a couple of years, I I just realized that I can't go to them for things like that. Mm-hmm. I have to go to other people in my support system. And because I want to um, keep my relationship with them alive, I've learned to accept it. That's a really powerful realization. And I think something that a lot of us with BPD struggle with is wishing that our relationship with our parents were different, you know, wishing that they could validate our emotions. And quite often our parents were raised differently from a cultural perspective, differently from always from a generational perspective. And Mm -hmm. the way that we relate to our emotions has changed so much. I just realized I don't want to hold that anger towards my parents. They did the best they could with, with the emotional toolbox that they had. And that anger was really keeping me stuck. Actually, I think letting go of that for me was really hard, but that's something that freed me more than anything else. When did you uh, start to let go of that? (laughs) Honestly, like two or three months ago, probably. Yeah. I had a really big blowout talk with my parents like two or three months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Just where finally for the first time in my life, I think for maybe 50 interrupted minutes, I just like cried and screamed and yelled and out all of my feelings and they just listened. Oh my God. I had the same. I was like 29 and Mm. I remember getting triggered because they were like pushing me to keep a job where I was being sexually harassed. And I was like, why do you guys always care about work and not about me as an individual? And um, then I like blew up and I was just like, did you know that I have BPD? And I was just crying because of how they reacted to me in the past when I told them about BPD. And I remember just feeling like a like a baby with how much I was crying and like they were trying to shush me but they didn't know how to talk to me like like you said they didn't have the emotional tools you released a video not too long ago about you using edibles as exposure therapy and I think you live in California right so obviously like everyone don't worry Kim is not illegally using (laughs) edibles not that anyone gives a shit but you know whatever well I grew Um, up in California but I moved to Portland where it's also knowing that you are using edibles as exposure therapy and I would love to hear what your take on what is exposure therapy why did you think you needed it and how does BPD contribute to that 
Okay. Um, exposure therapy is just kind of like plunging yourself into what makes you scared. So if you're like afraid of talking to people, you would go into a room and make a bunch of friends. So if you relate that to um, getting high, wh what it's like for me when I get high is like all of my unconscious fears bubble up and I have to look at them. Like it's almost as if I'm in a fun house and I see versions of me distorted and I can't look away because they're all in front of me. And um, I think it's, I think getting high amplifies all my BPD symptoms, to be honest. But mm -hmm. I give myself a controlled environment where I'm just like, you know what, I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm just going to journal everything I'm thinking and um, meditate on it. And that's where I think it becomes effective rather than me just escaping. The quote that you said was, marijuana helps me see what my mind is trying to hide from me. And I really like that because I feel the same. Anyone who is not able to get weed legally uh, from like a dispensary, I would highly recommend not doing that because I have had experiences getting weed that has been laced with other shit. You don't know who's selling it. You don't know what's in it. You don't know if you're actually smoking something synthetic, like sprayed with some awful stuff. And also you don't know the dose that you're getting. What are some of the biggest kind of epiphanies or insights you've gotten when you were high that you wrote down and then you reflected on when you were no longer high later? Oh my God. So my friend, uh, my friend wasn't texting me and the emotion that I felt was like, rejection. And I remember just writing like sharp pain and just describing how bad it stung. And I told myself to reflect on it later. So when I was sober, I realized that I was being codependent with a friend that I had just been um, getting closer to. And these feelings were coming up because it was a new relationship and intimacy scares me. So that's one thing that um, one of my trips showed me writing down like your feelings, it's a really powerful exercise because so many of us, even people without PD, BPD, we feel that something hurts or we feel that sensation or we get like a scary, big emotion. And because we're so conditioned to think, whoa, big emotions are bad. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. So mm -hmm. we like go drink or we push it down. So the fact that you just said, okay, something hurts. It hurts in my chest. It feels like it's burning. It feels like I can't breathe. That act in itself is speaking those feelings out into existence. And in that is a very healing thing. Did you, do you find that once you've started to like put your feelings out there and sit with them, how has that changed your recovery? Oh, sometimes I need to journal if I need to get over things. Journaling or making a video or just like talking to myself and recording it. Those are my favorite acts of processing emotion um, when I can't talk to my therapist, of course. Sorry, I forgot the last part of the question. I also forgot the last part <laughs> of my question. So you want to know what we're going to do? Move on to the next question. Why not? This is, we, can do, we do what we want, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question is, you said that you used to be addicted to MDMA and uppers in your video. I was never addicted to MDMA, but man, I can relate to why someone would want to be addicted to MD or that why it would be an addictive type substance is what I want to say because it's I have, it is, it is. And I am not like encouraging people to do drugs, but I can understand it is a pretty incredible feeling. And 
I can understand why people are attracted to it because it gives you a feeling for a brief moment in time. Well, I'll let you describe. What does MDMA feel like for you when you're on it? Why were you so attracted to it? Oh, gosh. So when I first took it, I remember thinking like, wow, this is what it feels like to love people and let them love you and it's safe. Mm. And I never felt that before taking the drug because I was probably self-medicating at the time. And that's why I became addicted to it as I would take MDMA every weekend for like a straight year. And Mm. I remember like wanting to do really well in school because I was conditioned by my parents and putting on that like student hat. But then during the weekends, um, I would just go crazy and like get really high. And I would, it was like, I was working to feel that euphoria of like feeling love during the weekends. So you said you were doing it every weekend for about a year. So obviously about a year in, you were like, whoa, this isn't healthy. What was the moment like when you kind of realized this is now an addiction and it's not healthy? Oh God. I remember I, I went back to that ex who abused me. And the reason why I went back to him was because he had drugs. So um, my friends had stopped using it. And I was the only one out of the group that was still doing drugs. And I was like secretly doing it with this person that was bad for me. And that made me realize that something wasn't right. And I also wasn't feeling that the euphoria, it was like, I needed to be high to feel functional. And that, that felt awful. You realized that your friends were kind of not doing that anymore and that you started to feel like it was kind of a dirty little secret that you wanted to hide because subconsciously you knew like, this is not a good thing. Right. And it's like, I think a lot of people out there can relate to that, whether that's any addiction that could be you're dating someone still that that's abusive towards you and you don't want to tell your family or, you know, you're doing a drug. I think that we can start to realize that something is not so healthy when we're doing it in the shadows. If you are like gay and you are hooking up with guys, that's not necessarily inherently wrong just because you're doing it in the shadows. That's a totally different type of thing, you know? But if you are like doing heroin with a group of friends or you are with a guy who beats you up and you feel like you need to see him and not tell any of your family, it's like, those are pretty good signs that something is not right. (laughs) Yeah. And I just realized that as I was talking to you, I didn't really put that together. That's that the timeline was kind of similar. Mm. So thank you for asking that. This is a great segue to this next question. You have a video called I Was the Toxic Borderline X. Just this title alone, I loved it because I was like, same, same. I was also (laughs) that multiple times in my life. Same, same, same. I think a lot of us are afraid to admit that the problem might be us. What took you from thinking that you had done nothing wrong and like it was everyone else? And then when did you realize, fuck, I was the toxic borderline X? Um, I realized it when I started dating someone who wasn't, abusive and who like was able to tell me everything straight and kind of helped me reflect on the things I used to do because I tried to do them to him too. And he would set boundaries on me. Like I didn't know that I was being manipulative, but if I got emotional, I would um, 
try to bring up things. I don't even know the term for it, but like bringing up things that would make him feel guilty so that he would feel sorry for me. He was like, are you trying to manipulate me right now? And he was the first person that brought it up. And I was like, oh, I thought that was just something you do in a relationship. What have you learned from him about healthy relationships? A lot. Um, The biggest one is that there's not anything inherently wrong with me. It's just like the way that I deliver and communicate mostly. I'm going to ask you a two-parter. So the first part of the question is going to be, what advice would you give to someone with BPD to have a healthier marriage or relationship? And what advice would you give to the loved one, the partner of someone with BPD? I would say be vulnerable, even if you're afraid to admit that you have abandonment issues and that you're afraid they're going to leave you or whatever it is, find time to be vulnerable with your partner and tell them what your triggers are. And you want to do this when you're not already like splitting and triggered on, triggered by them. So that's my advice to the borderline and to the non-borderline, I would say be mindful of triggers without walking on eggshells somehow. You bring up the topic of codependency a lot in your videos. And so is your codependency something that you've overcome throughout your marriage or did you feel like you overcame it before? What is your relationship with that been like? I think I was kind of forced to overcome it if I wanted to stay with my partner. So if he wasn't as independent as he is, I would have been in a codependent relationship or stayed the same way. But um, I think, honestly, I'm barely getting over being dependent and Mm -hmm. like finding out who I really am. It's so easy for people to say, you need to learn about who you are, right? And we hear that message so much, like find out who your true self is. What does that mean to you in your own words? How are, have you had glimmers of kind of realizing your true self through your recovery journey? Yes. And they came through making videos, to be honest, Um, talking about like the symptom, no sense of self. Um, And um, just like, I guess like going down the list of like what my values really are and then doing things based on Um, if I'm acting within those values or morals. And I had never done that before I started learning about myself. So that's one thing. Rose Skeeters, she does the podcast from Borderline to Beautiful. She does about three different episodes on having a moral compass. I think a lot of people grow up knowing what their values are. So to describe to someone that doesn't understand how it feels, I remember having a moment where I was like, I have no idea what I stand for, who I am, right? Because we spend so much time reacting and we're, and living on autopilot. There was a very big chunk of my life where not a single decision I made, did I ever sit down and think, what's the consequence to this? Who do I want to be? What's my desired outcome? That just didn't exist for me. What's your thoughts on that in particular? Did you have a moral compass growing up and how are you creating that for yourself now? I did not. I um. I remember just taking on the personas of the people that I held closest 
And the person would change like within every year. So my morals would change and I would embody like the next person. Mm -hmm. So I stopped doing that when I got with my husband. I did it a little bit with him. I'm not going to lie. But after like the third year together, I realized I had to develop some sense of self. And um, I learned that like I'm a spiritual person. My husband is not like I, I tried to like throw away my tarot cards and everything when I first started dating him. But I was like, no, this is me. I'm spiritual. I love psychology. I love helping people. And those are things that make me me and give me purpose. As you say that, and I'm reflecting on this subject myself, I'm realizing that the pandemic for me, it was almost like, I don't know if you're familiar with like the dark night of the soul. The pandemic for me has really been like this like baptism of fire to a certain extent Ooh. because it forced me to be only on my own. My my partner's very independent and he's so supportive. He he wants me so badly to go forth, like find who you are, right? And throughout this whole podcasting journey, he's been so supportive. I've reconnected over the pandemic by just sitting with myself. I had no one else. I've also gotten super into tarot because I've always loved mythology and symbology and psychology, like all the ologies, all the ologies. My spirituality has been something that has become so precious to me throughout the pandemic. What does tarot mean to you and how has that become a, a ritual or part of your recovery? It's similar to what you said um, when I was watching your live. It kind of takes me out of my BPD mind. And my BPD mind is very cynical and like pessimistic. And I always think of the negative outcomes. But when I do tarot, I'm just like, oh, this is something I haven't been seeing. And it it connects to your soul, not just your mind. For me, I think about tarot like it forces you to trust yourself. And I think that's something that we find really difficult with BPD. So to just force yourself, even if you're atheist, even if you like don't believe in anything, even if you are like fundament, fundamentalist Christian, I doubt if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're probably going to love my podcast very much. But just, <laughs> um, I just find the act of sitting down with these cards and trusting yourself that you're going to pick the right one. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first was drawing cards, I would draw one and I would be like, oh my God, is that the right one? Yeah. And I think there's also a misconception that like tarot cards are supposed to tell your future, but really mm -hmm. it's just reflecting the possibilities. I love that. BPD and work. I do not hear a lot of people talking about this on other recovery podcasts. I feel like a lot of the, you just hear stories of BPD as people who are locked up in a psych ward who can't even function. And while yes, some people with BPD have to do stays in a psychiatric hospital in order to get them back and give them a boost and get them back out into society. The vast majority of people with BPD are out there in the world doing this life thing and struggling behind closed doors. For me, BPD and work has been such a roller coaster. I have switched employment quite a bit, but because I'm a really good worker, I usually find a job rather rather quickly and excel really quick really well in that job. What has your relationship been like with work throughout your life? It has been very toxic in that I will put work above myself. And kind of get self-worth through the productivity, which is very unhealthy. But um, I tend to do well in the workplace, um, but it's at the expense of like my well-being. 
What do you think is the main change that you've made in your life that it's made it easier to overcome the natural struggles that come with having BPD and holding down a high power job? Well, go to therapy, of course. You need a value system. Like I was talking about, you need to have that sense of self. Otherwise you're going to use other things, whether that be your job or your relationship to feel like a person. So you want to get to a point where you don't need those things to feel important. And I would say to, I don't know, I don't want to be corny and say like, do a workbook, but that's what I did. So lightning round. Yay. So I'm going to ask you little short questions and you can give just like a nice succinct answer. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of my partner dying and that I'll be all alone. What advice would you give to someone who feels alone? To hang out with yourself, kind of like you're hanging out with your inner child and think of it as spending time with someone cool. Where do you go to find peace? My bed. I love to rub my feet on the sheets. When do you feel most like an outsider? I would say when I'm with a group of people that talk over each other because I tend to absorb other people's energies and I then I can't feel like myself at that point. What are you obsessed with right now? True crime. What's a morning routine that if you stick to it helps your BPD symptoms? Tarot. I have Mm -hmm. to do tarot every morning. Yep. Same. That's my biggest thing. If someone isn't into tarot, what's another thing that you find very grounding and centering to do in the mornings? Oh, writing down how you feel and, Mm -hmm. um, and why you feel that way. What gives you hope? The fact that we're doing this podcast right now. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming on. It has been such a pleasure. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you so much. I'm smiling so big right now. Oh, good. Well, I hope that everyone that listened, this made you feel a little less alone. And Kim, I'll let you end by saying where the listeners can find you. Okay. You can find me at overbpd.com and at your new pen pal um, on Instagram and through Kim Poster on YouTube. And my piece of advice is hydrate. That is so fucking true. If you're feeling grouchy or emotionally dysregulated, it's like, bitch, do you need a glass of water? That is very <laughs> important. So it's your new pen pal and then overbpd.com. Yes. Okay. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kim. Thank you, Molly. I love you. All right. I love you. You're going to be back. All right. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. 
To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.